Hello, welcome to Reverb, everyone. I'm Calvin Pollock. I'm joined uh, back on the mic for the first time in a bit. Uh, my good friend Alex Helberg. Welcome back, Alex. Thank you. Good to be here. And we are joined today, really thrilled to be joined, by Cameron Mozafari. Cameron received his PhD from the University of Maryland, currently teaching at Central New Mexico Community College. His work is at the cross-section of rhetoric and cognitive linguistics, and he's interested in figurative language, lexical semantics, conceptual blending, and grammatical constructions in persuasive discourse. Cameron, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I think we wanted to start out talking to you a little bit about a public scholarship project, uh, if we might call it that, that you've been working on. You recently put together what you were calling the Trump COVID-19 corpus. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is, uh, what it comprises of, and what is it meant to do? Yeah, sure. So I created this thing. I wanted to have like a, a snazzier name for it so that there's like an acronym that spells out traitor or something like that. <laughs> I, I settled on Trump COVID-19 corpus just to be maximally descriptive. Um, it's yeah, a descriptive kind of, is never going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's a medium sized corpus. It's about um, 800,000 words. So it's depending on who you ask, it can be a small corpus because you have the corporate that are like, you know, 10 million words now. But I, so I took all the, the, the speeches, uh, the coronavirus task force press conferences and interviews with different governors that Trump was speaking at about COVID-19. And I put those all together into a, a corpus. It's about 70 documents long, if you look at the different events. And then I, I also used a Python script that my friend Alan Chung created for me that extracts all of the speakers into separate files. So you can search this corpus by speaker. So you can create like a kind of subcorpus of just Trump or just Pence or um, Anthony Fauci and start to analyze how their speaking is different or how the, the kind of language that they're using is different from one another and how they're approaching the rhetorical situation in different ways, what kind of linguistic resources they're using, what kind of frequencies you find across speakers. So the goal was kind of just to see if there is a difference. I mean, that's part of the goal to some extent. But what I found is that there's there's kind of more to this. And, um, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that. Yeah, no, I th and I think we want to get into <clears throat> some of the distinguishing differences between different speakers and, and comparing rhetorical styles and responses, as you said, to the rhetorical situation of COVID-19, uh, because it has been very diverse across that corpus. But just for a, a really quick a little clerical point, just for some of our listeners who have never maybe heard that word corpus before, could you tell us just in brief kind of what a corpus is and kind of what the purpose of analyzing texts as a corpus uh, would be from, you know, from an analytic perspective? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so corpus linguistics is not something that people in rhetoric and composition or communication, I think, are, are as familiar with. Um, usually it gets put into the kind of digital humanities camp. But a corpus is a collection of machine-readable texts of naturally occurring language. So it's not artificial language. And linguists in particular use corpora in order to get frequency patterns to observe frequency patterns of natural occurring language. So it gets used for things like building dictionaries or for things like discourse analysis. How, how is this term changing across time? So in that sense, it's actually really uh, useful for rhetoricians. And I think that there's, there's a lot of opportunity in rhetoric and composition to start incorporating corpus analysis. And that's kind of like big data turn that we're seeing in a lot of different capacities of the humanities. So one of the, the great features about corpus linguistics as well is that you can start to compare different corpora or subcorpora. You can see how things are, are changing. So you can take one corpus, say a corpus of Trump's language, and you can compare it to another corpus. So like a, a corpus of Pence's language or a corpus of Anthony Fauci or Dr. Burks's language, Deborah Burks. And you can see what kind of statistical features stand out in the one corpus versus another one. That's called a keyword analysis. Um, to use a technical term, and there are, you know, a lot of different arguments about, you know, what kind of statistical measures you should be using in order to, to determine keyness or whatever, but that's, that's more on the technical side. So in general, corpus linguistics or a corpus, a corpus analysis is just analyzing naturally occurring language that's big without going in and, and analyzing each text separately. You can see trends that are happening across lots of texts. Gotcha. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for that. I I think, you know, in my experience with 
corpora, often one of the most rewarding aspects of them is just exploring data, like exploring a topic. And this raises a question that we wanted to ask, which is what exactly, when you were going in building this corpus, what were you trying to explore? Like what, what about Trump's COVID discourse or the administration's COVID discourse jumped out at you as this would benefit from collecting a lot of this and looking at it uh, at scale? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so to be honest, I, I kind of, I have this habit of building Trump corpora. So I started making Trump corpora when I was doing my dissertation work. I Old habits created, die hard. Yeah. <laughs> I created corpora of the Republican and Democratic debates in 2016 and the presidential debates in order to try to figure out the kind of linguistic patterns that were constituting Trump's speech. Because I, I recognized that it was weird. Uh, I think everybody was recognizing that it was weird, but I didn't really know what was weird about it. Uh, and, you know, since then, we've we've come to see a lot of these patterns ourselves. So um, his use of, like, terms and phrases like a lot of people or his strange use of evaluative adjectives like terrible and beautiful and perfect. But uh, there was something kind of strange that was going on with Trump's language as well that I was seeing in the COVID discourse. And I wanted to kind of get a better sense of what was going on. So Trump is really good. I don't know if your audience knows this. But Trump is really good at making people angry. Um, no. and also make, uh, and, this president? What? <laughs> and making people scared or feel safe. So these are things that maybe are not super helpful when talking about a pandemic. So what I was seeing with the, the COVID communication was a, a, a failure to do the job of a president, which was to you know, calm the situation, maybe give some information and help people to understand and better prepare themselves for what was going to happen during the COVID-19 pandemic. And instead, what we got was a lot of rambling about jobs. He, he, he kind of goes back to his old, old tricks, right? A lot of demonizing China. So if we think about like what uh, Aristotle says in the rhetoric, he says that there are, are two topoi for emotional appeals. These are two of the many topoi that he gives. One is to make people angry and one is to make people calm, right? Um, these are two emotional appeals that you can create. So if an audience is too calm, you might want to make them angry. If they're too angry or scared or, um, or upset in some way, if they're too excited, you might need to make them calm. And at least for a, a, a competent leader, these are two kinds of skills that you need to have. And I didn't see Trump doing a great job with the calming part. So I wanted to see what kind of language he was using and... Um, in what ways he was kind of uh, uh, failing to do his job? Uh, what was he doing wrong? How did his his kind of like linguistic tics that were so successful with creating fear and anger, how are those those tricks not working when he was shifting Topoi into that calm register? Let's start from the description. What are some of the things yeah. that you're seeing that that you find most interesting in these in these texts? So I, I guess one of the things that I wanted to do when I started to analyze this corpus is not the thing that people generally start to do. So usually when you start analyzing corpus, you look at frequencies and you look at maybe keywords or collocations or engrams. And what I did was I started to think about the kinds of conceptual metaphors that I was finding in the texts. So what kinds of conceptual metaphors was I paying attention to? What kinds of things was I hearing in Trump's discourse? And um, how did that play out in an actual, like, analysis of what was going on. So what I, what I started to do was I created a list using uh, MetaNet, uh, which is a, a list of kind of lexical items that link to frames for analyzing conceptual metaphors. So what kinds of ways were people talking about viruses? What are the conventional ways of talking about viruses? And, you, you know, the conventional way that people talk about viruses is, uh, should not be news to anybody who is listening either. Uh, we talk about them in terms of water or fluid flowing. So we talk about, you know, the first wave or the second wave, or we get inundated by a virus or the virus is spreading or it's seeping into a country. These are the, all the, the figurative ways that we talk about viruses. There are plenty of other ways that we can talk about viruses too. We can talk about them as wild beasts or enemy combatants. And one of the things that I was finding in Trump's speech was he wasn't using the conventional ways of talking about viruses. He was actually talking about them in terms of war. So he, he says that, you know, we're fighting the invisible enemy. We're on the front lines of the virus that uh, we need to use the weapons in order to fight the virus. So the kinds of 
things in the source domain that we find, so the source domain meaning the, the language that we're using in order to talk about the coronavirus, were coming from the war domain. They were coming from ways that we talk about war in kind of really significant ways. So I guess for an example, so uh, when I was analyzing the conceptual metaphors in this corpus, so this is actually like really tedious work. I'm not sure. There isn't like a button that I can press in order to find all the conceptual metaphors. I have to create a list of words that have to do with that source domain of war or source domain of water, and then go through each line where one of the uh, words shows up in the corpus and then see if that's a metaphor or not, if it's being used figuratively or literally. I found 58 examples of Trump talking about the virus in terms of water, whereas I found 547 examples of him talking about the virus in terms of war. So that's a wow. huge, huge difference. That's a yeah, huge I'll say. difference. So I, I mean, in terms of descriptive findings, that's one of the ones that kind of stood out to me. That's, I think, unique. I don't have the, the data to prove this yet, but I, I do think that that's probably unique across world leaders right now. And it does also speak to some of the, maybe the policy decisions that Trump has been quick to implement for addressing the coronavirus too. So, I mean, I think we, we may be inclined to think this is a screw up on Trump's part. Like this shows that he doesn't know how to effectively talk about viruses and this is going to redound to his political harm. But I'm actually worried about the opposite. I worry about the extent to which this has influenced the way that a lot of people are thinking about this virus. And that could be why mitigation is not working in some states, why many state and local governments have not done what they need to be doing. I just, I guess I just wonder about like, if you've thought at all about the possibility that Trump reframing this as a war hurts all of us, like in terms of health and economy and sort of social well-being, but it may help him politically by shoring up his power status within the U.S. system and insulating him from criticism, like some of those second order political effects of reframing something like this as a war. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Right. Um, so I mean, just to put this into perspective, if you look at in early April, when New York City was struggling with the coronavirus, Trump deployed the military in order to fight this figurative virus, right? So you find uh, spikes between March 27th to April 6th of the usage of this war metaphor. And that's exactly when he comes up with the idea of deploying the military, right? And then you also have this idea of protecting the border, right? Protecting the border from the virus. So he sends the military, he, he talks at least about sending the military to the border. So it's it's just a really interesting thing to see how, how Trump's policy decisions are being influenced by his ways of conceptualizing the virus. And I mean, I, I'm not sure if I can make a causal argument here. There are people who, who have made this point that, um, you know, if we're talking about conceptual metaphors, conceptual metaphors do affect the ways that we're thinking about problems. So if you look at like the work of uh, Paul Thibodeau and Lara Baraditsky, Metaphors We Think With, they have this really interesting study. They give uh, participants uh, two versions of a text where they're trying to talk about crime. Uh, so in one, they conceptualize crime as a wild beast. And in one, they conceptualize crime as a as a virus. So when it's a wild beast, it's attacking people. It's um, on the prowl in the city. And in the other, it's a virus. It's spreading. It's, um, it's infecting us. And what you end up finding is that there are two very different kinds of policy decisions that um, participants came up with. So when crime is conceptualized as a wild beast, you find that people want to trap and contain crime. So they set up traps, they set up ways of catching the perpetrators. But when crime is conceptualized as a, a virus, they come up with things like public service announcements or you know public information in order to help people to understand where crime is happening and what they can do in order to prevent crime in their area by locking doors or things like that, uh, making sure that um, valuable possessions are, are not visible in their cars. So 
one of the things that we we're seeing at least is that Trump is is to some extent falling victim to his own metaphor. He's using that kind of war metaphor in order to change the way that people are thinking about potential solutions. We are thinking of trapping coronavirus and also there's a lack of leadership from, you know, the high ups in terms of how we're going to start to deal with this problem. He leaves it up to to governors and the governors are are kind of just listening to him to some extent, but not following through there. I, I mean, I, I'm not a policy specialist in any way here, but I can say that the places that we're listening to Trump, and this is, this is no, no news to, to most people, the places that we're listening to Trump to liberate their states, so places like Texas, are also the places where we're seeing the most increase of coronavirus cases. So the places that opened up early, the places that liberated, and that's another war metaphor that we, we hear, are the places that are, are seeing an influx of, of coronavirus positive test cases, too. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a pretty that's a pretty good uh, palpable description of how conceptual metaphors and the way that they construct these frames actually do redound to policy differences. I think that's that's something that 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 doesn't get talked about enough in in a lot of even from everything from media discourse to to even some academic work, although more, I think, is being done on this, the way that you frame reality, especially when it's coming from high level policy positions, uh, definitely affects the sort of uh, possible outcomes that you can have from that. Not to not to put too fine a point on the, you know, the conflation or the the, comb- the combination of a water or a disaster metaphor and a war metaphor. For some reason, when I when we were first comparing those and when I read your tweet that was initially kind of comparing the frequencies of disaster or water metaphors and war metaphors, I was thinking about the uh, the alleged uh, behind the scenes story about how apparently Trump at one point pitched detonating a nuke in the middle of a hurricane that was going towards Puerto Rico. (laughs) So, again, not to put too fine a point on it, but talk about conceptualizing natural or, you know, things that do uh, move and and spread in a sort of more like natural or chaotic way, uh, putting those in terms of war, I think, is something that uh, that this president is definitely not unfamiliar with. One other quick thing, wait, one other quick thing that I thought of when just thinking about the consequences of war, the war metaphor for how, what Trump is trying to do in framing this virus, like when you're in the middle of a war, there is a certain degree of expectation of casualties of like yes. a lot of people are going to die. A lot of people are going to be displaced. But we will band together and, you know, in service of a larger goal. And here that that goal just seems to be capitalism. Um, right. But <laughs> I wonder if Save you could talk, talk, talk at all about that. Like some of the some of the other sort of consequences that are indexed by the war metaphor that, you know, Trump is clearly trying to get us to just accept like, you know, war is hell. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's actually a really good point. I want to answer that in two ways. So the first part, when we're in a war, we do think differently. So if we have that war frame operating when we're thinking about the coronavirus, and this is something that we've we've heard a lot from people who are health healthcare workers. When you think of casualties of healthcare workers as uh, war heroes, that reframes how we're thinking about doctors. We're thinking of their sacrifices as things that are to be valorized and honored rather than as failures of the state or hospitals to protect healthcare workers, you know, doctors not having PPE, nurses not having PPE. That's not something to, to celebrate. That's not something that is, is uh, making them brave. Uh, they're doing their job, you know, and if we start to think about how that war metaphor is affecting how we're observing the situation, how we're observing the the lack of support, the lack of um, preparedness that we have coming from the government to effectively start to fight this this virus and this pandemic, it changes the way that we're starting to evaluate the situation. Um, So that's the first part. But then the second part that you were talking about, the aspect of what Trump is talking about when he's talking about the coronavirus, I find it really strange. Um, If you start to look at the ways that he's, he's talking about the coronavirus, he does talk about it in terms of war, but he also talks about it in terms of the kinds of consequences that, that come about as a result of the coronavirus. So the he spends a lot of time not talking about how we should prepare for the virus or 
what we should do in order to, to have social distancing or to keep safe, he talks about jobs and he talks about the economy. He talks about things that maybe, I mean, so, right, you do, you do see um, jobs and economy affected by war, but these are not things that maybe he should be talking about at this, this moment. Um, they are things that people are concerned about. They are things that people are anxious about, sure. But at the same time, his responsibility during the uh, coronavirus task force press briefings is to talk about the coronavirus and what we should be doing about the coronavirus, to give us updates about the coronavirus. And instead, he leaves that to the doctors and he talks about what he knows about, which is business and praising himself. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really bad. It's, I it mean, is. so I guess just to get into a bit more of the description of, of what's in this corpus, Alex and I actually did some some initial analysis of the corpus. Uh, thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah. We we wanted to talk a little bit. I know that you you smartly used a much more robust analytic framework like metaphor analysis. We just kind of did a very simple keyword analysis and we wanted to talk about some of the examples of keywords that we saw. So what I did is I took the corpus and I created two subcorpora. So a subcorpus is just, you know, a small a, a part of a larger corpus. And so I created one subcorpus with all of Trump's uh, speeches and public statements and one subcorpus with all of the doctors in his administration and just did a keyword analysis using an R program called Stylo using this function within Stylo called a pose. Uh, we'll link to all of these programs that we've been talking about in the show description. But what what we found is that the top five Trump keywords in the Trump subcorpus were tremendous, nobody, money, fantastic, and soon. And the top five from the doctors was data, particularly HIV, outbreak, and someone. And so even just, you know, with this kind of very inexact tool, you can see the, that there's actually a great deal of polysemy in this corpus that you've created. Like there's actually multiple registers and kinds of voices that are represented, which I think Absolutely. is really interesting. And I wonder if, Alex, did you want to read some of the Trump examples? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I, I got so I got I got a couple. Well, I, I hesitate to call them fun ones, but they're 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 interesting to to look through here. Uh, you know, I did I took uh, nobody and tremendous as my two uh, as my two kind of key terms from the Trump corpus to study, and you know these are things that I knew that Trump used a lot in his speech, but I really got a better sense of what are the instances in which he kind of deploys this as a rhetorical tactic. So, I think what's first and foremost significant about the words like tremendous and nobody is that they have this kind of upscaled intensity to them. You know, nobody contains the sort of epistemic certainty that no, not a single person is within this category that I am, you know, about to construct here. And tremendous, of course, is, you know, a pretty hyperbolic level of, uh, you know, greatness. So again, it shouldn't be too surprising to anybody who's listened to Trump in the past. But I think that some of the instances that these are used, even in just like the first five examples uh, for collocation hits that I pulled were very revelatory of the the instances in which he deploys this. So the first couple that I pulled were in reference to media coverage of his his deployment of federal uh, disaster relief efforts, saying things like, we did all of this work, but when you read the phony stories, nobody acknowledges this. In another one, he says, uh, and they make up. And I said today, I said it today, they make up words. Sources say, in quotations, the most often used. Sources say, you know what the sources say, man? Sources say means they have nobody and they make it up. So, I mean, which, you know, is kind of a funny, like... Uh, well, he's uh, doing rhetorical analysis. I know, I know, I know. It's sort of th For that one, it's almost sort of like tragedy. The person you hate makes a good point or something like that. Yeah, well, that's true. Because that, yeah, because they do use... So because news sources do use sources say uh, when they... But it's not when it's nobody. It's when they want to protect the anonymity of... Uh, of usually high-level government official. Usually a high-level government official who is strategically leaking something to the press. There's, 
there's other instances like referring to governors that he's been coordinating with where he's trying to you know wh- the nobody is is sort of distancing him from potential negative or he's like disclaiming the idea that there's any negatives about the circumstances so he would say uh, and I would say that you could see for yourself that the level of respect and there's an inaudible section core working together was extraordinary there was nobody angry nobody upset we're able to help them and that's what we're all about Oh yeah, and he also uses it as a uh, as a sort of way of giving himself some cover. If he's being perceived as you know being in kind of a tough situation, he'll often use nobody in collocation with uh, things like nobody could have ever seen this coming. Right. Uh, so our another one from March twenty third. Our country was at its strongest financial point. We've never had an economy like we had just a few weeks ago, and then it got hit with something that nobody could have ever thought possible, and we are fixing it. Nobody could have ever seen something like this coming, but we know now and we know it can happen uh, and happen again on March 25th. So for nobody, that kind of illuminated for me, at least, all of the different places where he's using that sort of assertion of epistemically certain disclaiming or distancing uh, from certain elements. It also it also makes me think of Norman Fairclaw's work on dialogicality and the ways that Yes. Some kinds of expressions are more dialogical than others. You know, like the least dialogical is an unmodified declarative statement where you're you're just kind of declaring something and not acknowledging any other possibilities. But actually that negation is slightly more dialogical. And and Trump uses a little bit. A lot. Well, because you're a, yeah, because you're a, because yes. in order oh, because ahead, in order for for negation to be necessary, someone must have asserted the positive. Right. Precisely. And so Trump, Trump using such upscaled negation, actually, it hints at the fact that he's being criticized so much. It hints at other possible Mm -hmm. realities in a way that that somewhat weakens his rhetorical authority, I think. Uh, He wouldn't have to say like nobody. What was it? Nobody was angry. Nobody was upset. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Such a bizarre (laughs) thing to say unless someone is clearly claiming that people were upset he thinks the lady doth protest too much type thing in mental space theory they often say that in order for you to have a negation a negative space you first have to compare it to a positive space which is often the the ground space from which you're you're operating so you you do more processing with negation i I think that what you're pointing to is is also really interesting with the nobody one of the things that you also see with some of the other high frequency words things like great, good, tremendous, incredible, you find mm-hmm. a lot of these evaluative adjectives in order to try to make sure that Trump is still keeping a positive tone. You, you, you find ways that he's trying to make sure that his listeners are still observing that he has some sort of control over the situation, that we're in a good place, even though the, you know, the facts and figures are showing that he's faltering and failing at a, a national scale. So. Since you were mentioning the positive evaluations, uh, such as Tremendous, I just wanted to mention at least one example from that, uh, because, I mean, he's used it in other ways to just kind of, you know, upscale certain things, like when talking about the economy, like there's a tremendous pent-up demand, both in terms of the stock market, in terms of the economy. Once it goes away, once it goes through and we're done with it, which this is on March 16th, so... Haha. I think you're going to see a tremendous, tremendous surge. You know, there's a tremendous abundance of oil on April 3rd, uh, primarily because of the virus. The virus has uh, stopped the demand of everything, including oil. But one of the more interesting ones was on March 20th, where he uses tremendous sometimes in these ways that you see this, this slippage, which I think points to what you're talking about, Cameron, this attempt to let everybody, you know, try and put people's mind at ease. Like, don't worry, I've got, I've covered all the ground here. He says here, uh, we're going to be providing tremendous amounts of detail over the coming days, but a lot of it will be provided right now if you'd like to find out about it. There's been a week of resolute action, tremendous action, tremendous relationships have developed with people that frankly didn't get along, people that didn't like each other. So again, it's like things where... You know, you wouldn't usually use a word like tremendous to say there's going to be a tremendous amount of details provided in this press conference. It's <laughs> you can tell that there's a clear so you're, you're compensating for something here. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a it's an implicit response to uh, to the criticism that he was getting for being obfuscatory at best. I mean, also, it's just uh, with all of those concordance lines that you're reading, how many of them have to do with the coronavirus, right? They're almost all about <laughs> yeah. the economy. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> it's true. Or or he's kind of, or, 
Or he's kind of giving you an awkward peek behind the curtain into deliberations within the administration. Like it's not, it's not stuff we need to hear. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but that's what's. I mean, I do think the contrast with what the doctors say in this corpus is really fascinating as well, because it it gets at the dialogicality in general in this corpus that the doctors are speaking in radically different ways. So. You know, just looking at some of the concordance data for for data, there's this quote from Dr. Fauci on March 29th. Dr. Burks and I spent a considerable amount of time going over all the data, why we felt this was a best choice for us, and the president accepted it. So in direct answer to your question, the idea that we may have this many cases played a role in our decision in trying to make sure that we don't do something prematurely and pull back when we should be pushing. So that's an example where... Like, clearly they are deeply invested in the idea of data, like that there's something, something is really happening here and they're, they're letting the data lead them to make decisions, which is, which is not really the vibe you get from the stuff that Trump is saying. Not, not only that, but also just to really quick make a point on that, yeah. like the, the amount of sort of uh, embedded prepositional phrases uh, and, and other kinds of things in there does kind of point to the, you know, the idea that we may have uh, this many cases played a role in our decision in trying to make sure that we don't do something right. prematurely. Like the, all of that, you know, kind of points to this, what you were saying, Calvin, of upscaled dialogicality and hedging, right? Like you're yeah. allowing for, you know, you're allowing for the possibility of multiple truths to exist and really kind of trying to show intricate reasoning uh, through these long sentences, which itself is a contrast to Trump's rhetoric. You can contrast the, the kinds of language that Trump is using to the kinds of language that people like Dr. Fauci are making, too. So you see a lot of hedging in the scientific mm -hmm. discourse, but you also see a lot of intensifying and boosting in Trump's discourse. So there's a value of adjectives, that use of tremendous, right, that upscaling. It's really interesting to see the, the ways that the doctors are trying to be a little bit more cautious about how they're speaking, you know, maybe in the ways that we would expect somebody in power to talk about something that's uncertain, right? Versus the, the kind of absolute authority that Trump thinks that he has, the control that he thinks that he has over the course of this virus and how he's presenting it. So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, so the doctors are talking so much about like engaging with sources, engaging with data and information. There's this other quote from Dr. Burks on May 22nd. Dr. Burks was using a, like a PowerPoint as part of this this press conference or the, this event where they were speaking. Now, this is a complicated slide, but this is trying to show you how we triangulate data, the doctor says. So I took you through our surveillance systems. I've taken you now into the start of how we use laboratory data to really understand what's happening, both in the metros and at the state level. This is every single state. So talking a lot about the sources of the information and how the information is used to draw preliminary conclusions. Yeah, and, and, and the, the data from particularly is very similar. It's a lot of engaging with information and sources so we don't need to go through a lot of those. But I think that kind of my my big takeaway from this comparison when I was first looking at it was that Trump's authority to certainly dictate the way that the broader public is thinking about the virus does not seem super strong from this corpus, although we we have to take it with a grain of salt because we don't know what is reaching people and how, and also we don't know how this affects his most hardcore supporters definitely yeah i also just to make one last point on the the use of data and particularly particularly in that uh, last part that you read uh from dr burks you know the now this is a complicated slide you you notice also the level of sort of meta commentary and uh and deictic references to things that are outside of the speech itself which I think, you know, in this case, I mean, it literally is pointing to a source of data that is outside of the speech or is that is that is, you know, concurrently being showed while the speaker is speaking. So I think that also kind of points to this 
the genre of you know uh, technical communication and adaptation for public audiences right to make specific references to okay here is what i am walking you through now this is where we just were now this is where we're going you know this is what the data says you know making references outside of the text itself or out of the speech itself to those specific points which you know could be you know kind of a a a, a classic genre trope for scientific uh, writing and adaptation but is very interesting when when counterposed with the you know this sort of epistemic abstractions that trump is trading in about you know the media are phony um you know like we are we are or we will see a tremendous surge and things like that yeah i just thought that was kind of an interesting point too yeah i mean you, you see dr burks acting as a guide right and this is maybe what you right. would, would expect somebody who's doing crisis communication to do to walk you through it to help you to understand it part by part um it's definitely not what we see trump doing yeah, so I guess maybe to put a, a pin in our conversation about the corpus, thank you so much for creating this resource, Cameron. Yes. Like we we've already just in this conversation, like I think produced a, a lot of rich, interesting readings between you know the water versus war metaphor and the effects that that might have, as well as the dialogicality of Trump's speech and the very different genre tropes that that come out of what the doctors are saying and kind of dealing with that polysemy and what it says about Trump's rhetorical authority. I think there's a ton here and I'm really just like thankful to you for creating this resource. And um, of course. You're, you're making this available to, to pretty much any researchers who are interested in working with it, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I, it's, it's available publicly on, on my GitHub. So that's C-A-M-E-R-O-N 2786 slash Trump COVID corpus on GitHub. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, if, if you're interested in using it, just make sure you, you cite me <laughs> as the yeah. person who created the corpus. I, I actually had one, one final thing to say about this, uh, this corpus too. So one of the things that you can do is you can do keyword analysis or metaphor analysis, but if you just look at frequency of words that you're expecting to find in certain different speakers, that might be helpful too for, for seeing how different people are approaching this problem. So one of the, the issues that we're having in the United States right now is that a lot of people aren't wearing masks, especially conservative people. And if you look at the amount of times that Trump or Pence have talked about masks, so I created a subcorpus of just Trump and Pence, and I searched for the word mask, and I've only found 67 hits. So that's 67 oh, wow. hits for the both of them ever in their official capacity as president and vice president talking about the coronavirus. And a lot of those hits are actually talking about um, the lack of PPE. So they're going to get masks, right? Um, and those are for hospitals in particular. Very few of those instances are talking to the public about wearing masks. So you see that there, there are these kinds of obvious <laughs> shortcomings when it comes to talking to the public about what they should be doing in this genre that is meant to talk to the public about what they should be doing. <laughs> so, and like that's, it's not just with masks. Like if you look at um, other things that you would expect to find a lot of examples of, if you look at social distancing or social distance, I got 67 hits of, of the, the two of those. And then if you just compare that to the, the hundreds of times they talk about war, it's glaring, you know, the, the shortcomings that we find here, but also really helpful for people who are studying technical communication or crisis communication, how this could be something that could be useful for understanding what not to do <laughs> yeah. for future references. But also, you know, I mean, I think that this is a historical moment. Um, this, is, this is something that could be helpful for people. You know, I, I created it for people in rhetoric and composition, but also for people in discourse analysis and various fields of linguistics that might be interested in the kinds of language that comes with dealing with crises. So yeah, you can you can get this corpus. It's on my GitHub again. Um, that's github.com slash C-A-M-E-R-O-N 2786 slash Trump COVID corpus. Thank you, Cameron. You're welcome. I think that just those analyses of mask and social distancing and the failure of leadership that that those like keyword counts reveal and, and the specific instances where they even are coming up, I would not want to know how often like China is coming up compared to those terms. I can, I can do that search right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's the depression hour with uh, reverb yeah. here. <laughs> oh, 
man. I won't yeah, do that so, now, <laughs> so I don't know. I guess like we're going to go into like two more fairly depressing topics as well. <laughs> but I, I think having you here, we didn't want to miss the chance to talk to you about these things because they're relevant to stuff that you've been working on, stuff you've been experiencing recently. So the first was, and, 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 you know, and this ties together with this idea of Trump really using the administration to frame reality through uh, metaphors and other tropes that redound to occasionally his political benefit, although that's, that's always difficult to quantify as well, but certainly put all of us and particular people, particular marginalized people at risk and at, at danger and precarity. There was this executive order that came out about monuments. And I think we wanted to look at a little bit of the language in this executive order and kind of get your take on it, Cameron. So th- so this executive order, Alex, do you remember the date when it came out? Yes. Yeah, I've got it up. It was issued on June 26, 2020. Yeah. And, and, and so this, I mean, this obviously intervenes in the larger conversation about Black Lives Matter protests, protests against police violence. But I, I think, you know, it's impossible to separate that entire conversation and controversy and ongoing social movement from what's been going on with the coronavirus and the lack of leadership from the administration on that. So I think we, we may want to think about any interdiscursive overlaps going on there. But Alex, did you want to read any excerpts from the executive order? Yeah, absolutely. I think that this first paragraph is probably a good place to start that it has some, you know, this is right under the uh, the very first part of the executive order. It's uh, the purpose section, section one. So it reads from the top, the first duty of government is to ensure domestic tranquility and defend the life, property, and rights of its citizens. Over the last five weeks, there has been a sustained assault on the life and property of civilians, law enforcement officers, government property, and revered American monuments such as the Lincoln Memorial. Many of the rioters, arsonists, and left-wing extremists who have carried out and supported these acts have explicitly identified themselves with ideologies, such as Marxism, that call for the destruction of the United States system of government. Anarchists and left-wing extremists have sought to advance a fringe ideology that paints the United States of America as fundamentally unjust, and have sought to impose that ideology on Americans through violence and mob intimidation. They have led riots in the streets, burned police vehicles, killed and assaulted government officers, as well as business owners defending their property, and even seized an area within one city where law and order gave way to anarchy. During the unrest, innocent civilians have also been harmed and killed. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. there's, there's a, <laughs> a lot, lot going on there. A lot going on here. I mean, just just like <laughs> at, at a surface level, I did want to point out some of the odd copy choices in, in, in this opening graph. Like the fact that it implies through the grammatical construction property of and then and then a list of nouns. It implies that revered American monuments such as the Lincoln Memorial have have property, like have their own property. Um, <laughs> so I just like to think of like Lincoln, like grilling out back of his house, like, uh, you know, you know, yeah, after using uh, the reflecting, using the reflecting pool as a kiddie pool, you yeah. know, just kind of lounging in there with a beer. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it, like, I think one of the first things that Alex and I noticed when we were talking about this executive order in preparation for this was that there seems to be a ton of emphasis on property, first of all, like property as really core to not just the American system of government, but also American values and American identity that like property is something that we sort of ascribe to uh, being American. And then also, of course, like direct reference and, and construction as an enemy of Marxists, anarchists, and left-wing extremists. So that dialectic between property on the one hand is who we are and, and is, is what we value, and Marxists and extremists are, uh, are coming for your property. Right. Or Marxists and extremists value life over property, you know? <laughs> um, 
how dare way they? Of framing it. <laughs> right, right. How dare you? No, I think I, I, I so I, I was cued into that that consistent reference to property, and I think one of the reasons that it that it stood out to me so much was was not just because I had uh, other people who I'd talked to who, you know, might align more on the conservative side of the spectrum, but uh, you know, have said variously like one of the things i think is kind of fascinating about this this sort of resurgence of black lives matter it seems to be gathering a broader coalition at least of people who recognize okay like police killings of black people and other people of color that's a problem like this is you know the inordinately happens to people from these minoritized populations and it is it is a real issue right so you know i've heard people say things like you know yes i i agree with the the sentiment of the protests and people can peacefully protest and things like that but when people riot when people start damaging and destroying property that's where it crosses a line which i think you know i mean i could make some kind of you know deep historical analysis of how that relates to, you know, early conceptions of, you know, colonialism and, you know, the taking of and claiming of uh, sovereign property and things like that. I mean, it's something that is core to uh, kind of Americanism as an ideology, if we can if we can say that that's a coherent thing. And what about the Boston Tea Party, Alex? Yeah. uh, Yes. I'm mean, writing an article on on things related to that right now, and and yes, that's a. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was the destruction of property, no? Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's absolutely. right. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. As always, the you know we can call them hypocrites all we want, and um, and uh, and they they wriggle out of it somehow. Uh, but uh, yeah, that is kind of the interesting thing here is that th- that the destruction of property is seen as this kind of mobilizing factor that almost authorizes the use of, again, uh, what we see as like the war metaphor. This is a sustained assault on the life and property of civilians, calling them arsonists, left-wing extremists, and things like that. Uh, Extremists is used multiple times, you know, things like fringe ideology, violence, and mob intimidation. Like, these are things that... That basically, when you're using this kind of metaphor to talk about it, my worry is that you're potentially authorizing certain kinds of responses to Absolutely. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on, on that, given what we just read. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that we should also be looking at is the use of uh, first-person plural pronouns in this, right? Yes. So things like yep. our history, our, our way of being, um, our lives. One of the things that we, we definitely see in this executive order is an attempt to say that Americans are people who want to protect this property. Americans are people who want to protect these statues of Confederate soldiers and these statues of Andrew Jackson, and that it's left-wing extremists and insurgents and and fringe extremists who oppose these statues, who want these statues to be taken down, who want to attack things like injustice and representations of white supremacy in the United States. And I, it, that's the thing that really troubles me about this language. It's this kind of dissociation that's going on, to use that kind of Perlman and Albrecht's Titeca language. It's this way of making the reader and, and trying to turn the reader into somebody who is in support of keeping up these statues that are perpetuating this you know, white supremacist history. And a lot of these statues that are in question, a lot of these statues that are being taken down are not, you know, from history, right? I mean, they're not that old. They were put up for right. specific political purposes. And, you know, they, they represent a history of, of oppression. What I and many other people are trying to do when we're speaking out and taking things into our own hands in order to, to oppose these statues is that our histories are being whitewashed. <laughs> you know, these are not the histories of the United States. The history of the United States is not pristine, like the executive order wants us to believe it is. It's it's a history that's that's fraught with complications. It's really hard to be an American right now and to think that America is is the just society that the Trump administration wants us to believe it is. And, you know, it, it's always been that hard, but hopefully now we've got some awareness. People are starting to wake up and realize that this country is it's not perfect. It doesn't mean that it's not worth saying that you're an American or whatever, but it's not saying that, you know, we're trying to destroy America or trying to overthrow America. Maybe some people are doing that, but it is saying that we need to start to have critical discussions about what it means to be an American and whose whose histories are being represented and at what cost. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you pointed to the the issue of what the statues stand for, because I think like the positioning of the statues in this text 
is really key to what the text is trying to do overall. I want to just read one other short quote where it says, referring to, you know, destruction of statues or removal of statues by protesters, these criminal acts are frequently planned and supported by agitators who have traveled across state lines to promote their own violent agenda. These radicals shamelessly attack the legitimacy of our institutions and the very rule of law itself, unquote. And so it seems that these particular monuments, which, as you pointed out, Cameron, are, you know, have a specific material history. They were put up in specific political situations for specific political purposes are becoming kind of metonyms, metonymic stand-ins for the legitimacy of the state generally or the U.S. You know, as a country, as a society generally, when you know, maybe the protesters and people who support them have different ideas about what these monuments stand for. So it seems like a very you know, limiting vision of what these monuments actually mean as symbols. Yeah, but we're supposed to think that because they're old or because they represent these historical figures that they're they're part of American history with a capital H, you know, trademark. Um, that's right. You know, that's not that's not the case. Uh, history is always being written. It's always being rewritten. And these like, like you said, Calvin, these monuments and these memorials were built in a specific time for a specific purpose. And if you start to look into why they were built, you'll you'll get a better sense of what kind of political purpose and rhetorical purpose these monuments serve. You know, there's a lot of scholarship in rhetoric and composition and in uh, rhetorical studies in general about monuments. And if if we start to pay attention to that, we can get a sense of what exactly <laughs> is at stake here. It's it's not just the monuments and what they represent in history. It's the exactly what you're saying. It's the, the kind of metonymic narratives that they're, they're writing and they continue to write. Just related to this, uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Cameron, but I know that you know, where you're living right now in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was a kind of recently notorious incident at a protest. And I wondered if you would want to talk to us a little bit about that, just as part of this conversation about what these protests mean, what protesters are after and, and what they're dealing with, both from the state and from counter protesters. So, on June 15th here in Albuquerque, there was a, a protest against white supremacy and settler colonialism that took place outside of the Albuquerque Museum. It's an art museum. There's a statue there of Juan de Oñate, who was uh, a conquistador, sometimes called the last conquistador. I don't know if very many people know about him outside of the Southwest. He he brought Catholic settlers into New Mexico uh, to start to colonize the land of the 131 Pueblos. And he is most famous for colonizing the Acoma Pueblo or attempting to colonize the Acoma Pueblo, which led to the Acoma Massacre, where he killed hundreds of indigenous people and then enslaved men, women, and children. There was a lot of rape that went on. And he uh, cut off the feet of the people that he captured so that they couldn't run away. And when uh, King Philip of Spain found out about what he had done, um, he was tried for excessive cruelty and banished from um, the New World and sent back to Spain where he lived the rest of his life. So this statue is, is really strange. And there, there are actually a lot of statues to Oñate across the Southwest. He's come to, to be metonymic of Spanish-American identity. So people who don't identify necessarily as Latinx, but as Spanish. And in New Mexico, we don't have a large African-American population here. So white supremacy looks a little bit different. It's interesting to see these monuments to conquistadors and these mon monuments to colonists being erected as kinds of tomes to white supremacy. So back to the protest, there, it was a prayer vigil uh, initially outside of the Albuquerque Art Museum. Um, and people were trying to pull down the statue that is outside the museum of Oñate. So he's with a Native American guides. It's a really kind of racist statue. I think anybody who looks at it is probably going to be shocked. It was taken down recently, but um, one of my friends was shot during this protest. There was a, a man by the name of Steve Baca who showed up with a right-wing militia called the New Mexico Civil Guard. And uh, Baca was, um, was attacking peaceful protesters all night. He was 
throwing them to the ground and uh, spraying them with pepper spray. Uh, and uh, when he was finally chased away after um, slamming a woman to the ground and a woman uh, hit her head really hard, my friend chased him away and uh, Steve Baca pulled out a gun and shot him multiple times. Um, my friend uh, uh, is alive, thank God, um, but it was a, a really scary situation. And then I think that the way that the police responded to this was equally scary. Um, they showed up in tanks after the shooting and um, Scott's father, my, my friend Scott Williams, his father was at the prayer vigil um, inside the museum and he's a paramedic. Uh, he came out and was trying to keep Scott from bleeding out and the police were trying to stop him from from doing that. Um, and when its mother was trying to um, come in and um, see how her son was doing, uh, the police told her that she had no right to do that. Um, there's a quote that she gives where she says, you know, I was trying to say that I'm his mother, I'm his mother. And the police said, I don't care if you're the Virgin Mary. So it's just like, I don't know, it's, it's really um, disheartening. Um, currently, the, the whole incident is under investigation. And part of the problem there is that um, it's under investigation because they didn't take any uh, witness statements. Uh, because instead of asking what happened to the protesters, the many protesters that were there, they shot pepper, pepper balls at people and uh, tear gas in order to try to dissipate the crowd. And also, you know, Steve Baca is walking free. His father is uh, um, associated with the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department. So, you know, um, white privilege there too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. That's yeah. horrific. Yeah. I mean, like in the, the New Mexico Civil Guard, that white wing, right-wing militia, they're being celebrated in New Mexico by the, the GOP here as, um, as heroes. And Steve Baca online, I'm, I'm still getting harassment online for speaking out and saying, you know, this guy shot my friend. Like, how are people dealing with this? And I get harassment online saying it was self-defense and, um, you know, you show up to the next protest and see if you get shot too and, and things like that. Um, and it's, it's really disheartening to see what's going on here. It's, it's really, to bring that conversation back, you know, um, I personally, um, and I hope that many of our listeners also believe that human life is more valuable than property. And the, the kinds of, justifications that I'm hearing have to do with protecting these statues at all costs. And that language really does reflect the, the kind of language that you see in that executive order. The idea that preserving our history, whoever our, the our is in, in that our history, is more important than the lives of the people who are trying to criticize it. You know, thankfully, this whole incident has, has brought Albuquerque together and um, my community together in ways that were unexpected. So the various Black Lives Matter protesters, I mean, it's not just Scott uh, who has been attacked, you know, various Black Lives Matter protesters here have been attacked by white supremacists and um, by the police. So I'm thinking of people like Clifton White, who was arrested after a Black Lives Matter protest here for driving home a car of somebody, um, a minor who was um, detained by the police during the protest. He was trying to drive their car home for them because they couldn't drive their car home. And he was arrested. He's still in prison. And, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out why he's being imprisoned, uh, what, kind, what the trumped-up charges are, um, why it's taking so long for him to be released. And uh, there are um, other Black Lives Matter protesters and um, community leaders like Celinda Guerrera who have had their houses shot up. She's in, ha in her house with, with her, her kids at night and there's you know a drive-by that goes on. And she was recently, she's, she runs a, the Albuquerque Mutual Aid or she helps run the Albuquerque Mutual Aid, which is a community-led collective of people who feed folks during the COVID crisis. You know, my students have used this. Um, they've relied on the mutual aid program because the, they were there when the state wasn't. And it, it, it's a really important resource that really is bringing our community together in ways that are unexpected or were unexpected until the pandemic hit. So Celinda was recently evicted from her house and the mutual aid had to, it, it hasn't stopped, but it, it did get a huge hit. So it's, it's strange to see the ways that state violence and you know, white supremacy are 
being weaponized in order to attack communities that are trying to fight for justice and communities that are trying to speak out against injustice. But like I said, I mean, one of the good things that's come about as a result of this is that my community is, is, is coming together um, in ways that I, I couldn't expect. As someone who has run a community space here in Albuquerque for, for four years, I've seen the community show up in ways that I've never seen them show up before right now. And this is during a pandemic, which is really saying something. Thank you so much for for sharing those stories, Cameron. It's I, it's it's important, I think, at times like this when you because you don't really hear that kind of perspective on a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues, at least in the news media. It kind of gets covered in this a way that where they're sort of trying to neutralize or like not try to you know step on the toes of like one side or the other. But I think that by actually like really really you know provocatively talking about the kinds of violence that's enacted against you know people who are protesting these kinds of things that's it's it's important to acknowledge where that kind of thing comes from and the ways that it is you know continually uh, uh and not just not just you know the kind of literal violence you know committed against your friend but i mean you know things like housing insecurity and food insecurity that are being you know that that we can view as another kind of state violence against uh against marginalized people um like the activists that you were talking about so if nothing else i think it's i i'm i'm heartened to hear that you know this is something that's brought the community together and it's something that people can you know, organize around because now there's this sort of localized consciousness about uh, the the sort of interconnecting role that all these things play. You know, the fact that you know Steve Baca was the was the, the son of the a person who works in the sheriff's department obviously is kind of a uh, feels a little on the nose, but it but it but I think is indicative of you know the the way that a lot of this kind of power works. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, so I appreciate you sharing that with us. Of course. Yeah, and I mean, just to dovetail on that, I would add that the violence that you're describing really contextualizes this executive order in an, an important yes. way, right? It makes me think of the, I'm not sure which scholar to attribute this to, maybe either of you can, can help me with that, but the the sort of definition of the state as the holder of a monopoly on legitimate violence, Right. What what these examples and your description of of the experience in Albuquerque of of protesters illustrates is that, you know, the state is broader than just the formal state, uh, the formal police officers. The fact that Steve Baca is associated with a militia group that has sort of shady ties to the police, but is formally separate from the police. The fact that this monument enacts a kind of symbolic violence that continues to this day, you know, and provokes and participates in actual physical violence. And then the fact that the police show up in the aftermath of real physical violence and withhold medical attention or obfuscate it or interrupt it, this all just gets at the fact that executive orders like these, presidential rhetoric like this, it seeks to gaslight us about how violence works and how violence is distributed among centers of power and among the people. And uh, I think it's really important for us to push back against that, not just through analysis, but through the kind of community work that you've been centering and upholding. And yeah, and I'm just really thankful that you're doing this work. I appreciate that. Yeah, so um, <laughs> this has been a, a bit of a dark show. Yeah. I think that uh, I think we've had some breakthroughs, though, some analytical yeah. breakthroughs, some really important discussions, and I couldn't be happier to finally have Cameron Mozafari on the show after many productive Twitter discussions and um, you know brief discussions at events like RSASI and. Yeah, thank you so much for being here, Cameron. Any any final thoughts or things that you want to plug on the show before you go? I just want to say uh, thank you again, and also if you if you can, if you know of any bail funds groups in your towns or, or cities, um, make sure that you and if you have some some money to to spend, make sure that you keep those those rolling. Um, this is an important time for those. 
if you want to send us a link of resources or a set of links of, to resources in Albuquerque that we can promote, please do. We have Bucket Vale Fund here in Pittsburgh and some other really good mutual aid organizations that we can link to. But we really want to, you know, showcase the, the stuff that's that's helping in this immediate situation because it sounds like a lot of stuff is is still extremely precarious even just from this one isolated protest event. So so please send us those resources so we can share them. Sure thing. Thank you so much, uh, Cameron. It's been a real joy talking to you, even though it has touched on a lot of dark topics. I feel like, I mean, the, the best thing that you can do when the world is kind of shitty is to at least try to make better sense of it and at least have a better, you know, a better clarity of mind for moving forward in it. And and I think that that's, at least for my part, that's definitely something that, I, that I've come away from from this conversation, uh, as well as, you know, just from hearing about your work and talking with you online as well. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate that, too. Thanks for having me. No problem. Till next time, thank you for being here on Reverb. Great to have you back, Alex. Here's to many more shows this summer and this fall. Indeed. Take care, everybody. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.